Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Deb, it's so nice to see you. Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting. I have to tell you, Sherry was so excited that you agreed to join us and that we, we have a guest for this week because I think, frankly, she gets a little bit tired of just talking to me. So, And, and I know she's a big Deb fan, so she was very excited about this. And then something has come up here uh, just very last minute that was urgent enough to pull her away. So I know she's bummed to be missing the conversation, and I want to apologize on her behalf, but Thank you. It looks like you're in Sherry's role now. You're you're just stuck with me. So uh, <laughs> hope you don't mind that, Deb. No, not at all. I'll miss talking to Sherry, but I totally understand. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Let's let's go ahead and start kind of early on for you, Deb. I, I'm curious what role we're going to dive right in. I, no small talk. I see. <laughs> what role did alcohol play in your life? Um, Kind of, you know, early on, childhood or adolescence, uh, was it something that was around a lot when you were growing up? You know, that's a great question. I've thought a lot about, you know, I grew up um, with without alcoholic parents, although beer was around. I mean, I grew up in Golden where there was a massive brewery that was like the backdrop of our entire, you know, every baseball team was sponsored, you know, every, you know, they were very, you know, so it was just very normal. And, you know, my parents certainly drank, my dad loved to drink beer. Um, it was never anything that was out of control. It was never anything that was, uh, an issue. However, it was normal, you know, that's the thing. And I think that's the story I hear from so many others in this situation too, is that it's, it's a normalized thing and growing up in Colorado and, uh, you know, beer was part of the culture. I, I don't know how other places where I'm guessing it might be similar. Um, but it wasn't a big deal, you know, and then yeah. I went to college and, and I, I definitely partied a little more than I, I can't even believe now. When I look at myself as a 50 year old, I'm like, who was that person? Because <laughs> I, I can't even imagine doing that to my body or, or not getting sleep. Like, I, I don't even know. Um, but again, it was, it was that quote unquote normal. I, I think it was probably, you know, the easy to, well, easy to leave behind after I moved out of that phase of my life and into my adulthood. Um, and then that being said though, it, you know, socially it's, it's everywhere. I, I live in a, a craft brew Mecca of the, of the world here. And, you know, it's on every street corner, there's something. And so, um, but all of that, it never was a problem in my mind. It was never something that was out of control. It was never something that created chaos other than parties in college that were a little chaotic. Sure. Absolutely. I, I have to tell you a quick story. The first time my parents came to visit when Sherry and I moved to Colorado back in 2003, we got here. The first time they came to visit, we took them to Golden and we were at a restaurant. I don't remember where we were, but my dad ordered a Bud Light and it, it oh. was like, yeah, it was like a movie <laughs> scene. Like everybody in the restaurant just stopped and like stared at him and the server, like she just shook her head. Like, we, you know, you, you could literally see the shadow of the Coors Brewing Company out the front window of the restaurant we were sitting in as he's trying to get a Bud Light. So, but yeah, it's, right. it's definitely, definitely prevalent both in that big brewery sense, like what you grew up with. And then, like you said, I mean, we host here in Denver, we host the great American beer fest, which I think is right. the biggest in the world. Right. So the yeah. culture is just inundated. And I think you make a really, really important distinction between Yes, the drinking in my family growing up was under control. There was nothing particularly excessive, but and that's one thing, right? But then the, just the normalization, the the fact that we have accepted that when you go to a nine year old's birthday party uh, at ten o'clock on a Saturday morning, there's going to be a cooler of beer there, and that's that's just what we accept, and that's just one of the many examples of how alcohol is everywhere. Um, it you know, the alarm bells and the red flags, they're hard to notice when, when we have accepted this as normal to the extent that we have, it's just, just crazy. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really, that's one of the most important things I've learned in this journey is that those alarm bells and red flags 
I overrode every one of them for years. I mean, just didn't even think of them as red flags, you know, and now I look back and it's like, oh my gosh, there was a field of flags just waiting. Yeah. But boy, did I not notice that. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Was your, your current relationship with your partner that you're with now, was that the first time that you really were up close and personal with someone that was drinking too much? I would say almost. And what okay. I mean by that is I was, I was married previously for six years to a person who had um, severe adult ADHD. And he, I now look back and realize he would kind of self-medicate with alcohol. He, he said when he had a few beers in his system, he felt like he could focus more. He felt like he mm -hmm. was able to keep his brain, you know, on one task. And, you know, he and I are still friends. I mean, that, that, you know, ended for other reasons, but um, sure. I look back now and I realize that's, that's pretty a maladaptive way to deal with that again at the time, not even the slightest red flag. I just thought, oh, well, he buys a six pack of beer and drinks four of them and he feels better. Okay. You know, it's his brain and his life. It, it never got to the place that alcohol has gotten in my current relation. It never got to any of those places. It was not the reason for our separation. In fact, that was a sexual identity crisis on his part, really um, nothing to do with alcohol. So I look back though, and I can see it as something that maybe I over tolerated, you know, like, really, is that healthy? I, I don't know today. I probably wouldn't be cool with that. Well, you know so much now, but I, I think that's, that falls into the category of things that we normalize. I mean, from the very, just kind of glib and I was going to use the word normal to describe something that's been normalized, but yeah, <laughs> right. glib and, and normal way that people say, you know, I had a long day at work, so I need to relax. So I'm going to have a few drinks to, you know, I've written quite a bit about what, I, I don't know what technical term to use. So I always call it chaotic mind syndrome, where just the thoughts are racing and nothing will slow them down until I have a few drinks and then everything just kind of calms. So yeah. what you describe with your ex-husband makes absolutely perfect sense for me. Unfortunately for me, obviously it did continue and escalate to the point where it was a big problem in Deb in your current relationship was, was the drinking an issue right from the outset, or as we all know, this is a progressive disease. Did you get to witness some of the progress? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it was both, to be honest. I definitely have witnessed the progress over the last seven years, um, painfully witnessed the progress. And also I look back at the early, earlier years and it was very early in our relationship. We've been together 11 years now um, and we're, we're not married largely because of this. This showed up about seven years ago and, you know, um, this alcohol situation, but early on, I, I realized that it was a concern to me. And at one point, I remember we were actually making dinner. We had some friends coming over and we were making dinner. It's a distinct memory. And one of those dinners where there was multiple things going on and, you know, two people in the kitchen and over about an hour, he, he popped open his fifth beer in that hour. Oof. And I'd had none. Cause of course I'm trying to, like, I can't do all that and stay focused on all the things cooking at once. And I turned to him, I said, just for the record, that's number five. Might not be the most sensitive, compassionate, but I was just off the cuff, organic. I had no idea we were dealing with disease in this moment. You know, it was just like, dang, dude, that's, and it created this immediate resistance, this immediate tension, this immediate, I don't need somebody to be tracking all this. And the defense mechanism in that moment, I can look back on now and realize that that was only, that was five I'd seen. And what my comment touched on was an underground world that I didn't know about, but that he did. And I think he probably had, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he probably had some concerns about it. Um, it was starting to get more out of control in that moment. I said, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but I am not paying for any more alcohol. You know, at that time we would do things like alternate who paid for dinner when we went out to eat. And I said, I'll pay for dinner. And if you get a drink, it's, it's on you. You know, don't ask me if I'm running errands to swing by and get a six pack. Cause I won't do it. And that was, that was, oh my gosh, Matt, that was seven years ago, eight years ago. You know, I didn't know. So after that, you know, it went all underground. I thought, oh, he, he, cause he, then he came back a few days later and said, you know, I thought about it. I think I want to cut back. Well, now I realize what we're in is that roller coaster of mm -hmm. this thing. I didn't even know we were on a roller coaster back then. 
And I believe that he wow. was stop- stopping it, you know? So I think then the progression started with me way behind what the heck was going on, you know, and my catch up, you know, that, that learning curve was straight up a rock face with no technical climbing gear. Um, because the disease was moving faster than I could climb that rock, you know? That's fascinating on two fronts. First of all, <clears throat> pardon me, that you you drew that line in the sand right there in the moment. Um, that's that's really interesting. So we talked about how it's easy to miss the red flags and the alarm bells, but obviously something was screaming at you in that moment. Was it was it the fifth beer or was it his defensiveness that, that was more alarming to you? Oh my gosh, it was the defensiveness. It was how, yeah. how he could go from we were having fun to basically attacking me in this bizarre way, you know, that I was just like, whoa, what, what is that? Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, stay out of, I'm drinking whatever I want. And, uh, you know, it wasn't even casual. It was like, and I realized, wow, I hit something big here and I don't know what it is, but something. Um, again, naive. I was still was like, oh, but what is it? Well, that, that real, that so relates for me because I thought a lot about the fact that even, you know, it, it took me 10 years to get sober. Right. So I would have periods of sobriety and then I would decide, Oh no, if I just put more rules around it, I can, I can figure this out. I can, I'm smart enough. I can figure out how to control my alcohol consumption. And so that back and forth took place for 10 years for me. And even when I was in the periods of drinking, you know, once you've crossed this invisible line and you've admitted to yourself that you have a problem, you, it's one of those things that you can't unknow. And so when, when you said that he had that reaction and that defensiveness, then to me, I think you're right. Cause you, you, you said you weren't in his mind, but you're guessing. I think, I think your guess is accurate that this is something he's been contemplating for a while and that's been dogging him and bugging him. And uh, to have that, that reaction, that, that's something that I absolutely would have done boy, when I was in those periods of drinking in between the periods of sobriety, I was, um, right on edge. If, if Sherry wanted to call me out on something, I had something to say back. So I can, I can totally relate to that. So, so where did it keep going? If you would, where did it progress from there? Yeah. So after that, um, I, I was in a, uh, a period of time where I actually ended up hitting my head Um, I was getting a mammogram and I, I passed out and fractured my skull on the floor. So immediately I became altered for a few years. And what I, what I now understand was that that was also a profound trigger for him, you know, and it escalated his drinking. We're past the point of him accusing me. There was a time when it was like, well, your brain injury was the reason for this. And I was like, yeah, we're not having that conversation. We're just not having it. Like, I can't for you. That's good. But, um, you know, so there were a few years where I was in a state, you know, I was functional, but I also did have a a severe concussion and it it does, you know, there were, it requires a lot of rest. It required a lot of time where I, I literally like taking a shower and making a sandwich and doing a little bit of work was what I could do. And so he was off doing his own thing. I was still managing most of the household frustratingly. I still just couldn't put the pieces together, but during mm-hmm. this whole time for, I think it ended up being about three and a half years. The only time I saw him drink was if we were eating Mexican food, he would have a margarita. And I, it makes me sick to think, cause there was one time I even said to him and it, it actually breaks my heart. I'm like, I am so impressed that you were able to stop drinking so much. You know, I knew there was something going on. I thought he must have anxiety and depression and there were some things, but I never saw him drink and it would never occur to me that somebody would lie. What I found out was, is that it was completely undercover. He had hidden alcohol all over the place. He was, a, he's masterful at, at doing this in a hidden way. And this benefit of part of my brain injury was that I lost my ability to smell. So quite literally he could go out in the garage, have some drinks, come back in and talk to me six inches from my face. And I couldn't smell. Mm. And so there were many times over that period of time where I I said to myself, if I didn't know better, I would think he was drinking, Mm -hmm. but I know he's not drinking because I'm not seeing it. And there was nothing in my worldview that would say that somebody would lie and hide and manipulate to the degree that he was doing. Like, I didn't know that addiction would do that to a a perfectly decent person. So I was again, walking around totally naive because it just wasn't who he was in my eyes. Um, 
then there was a day, it was a, a day, I believe it was early, late May or early June, I think it's four years ago now. Uh, he was supposed to lead a workshop, an outdoor workshop up a canyon, um, out of cell phone range. He left here about 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday. About 10 that morning, I get a call and it's his cell phone. And I was like, oh gosh, that's not good because he's supposed to be out of cell range until tonight up in the hills. Right. And I get on the phone and he's clearly drunk. Hmm. And he was like, Deb, I'm really sorry. One of my clients is bringing me home and I've got something I need to tell you. And at that point, I will, I mean, the things in my head were not publicly. It was like, oh, blank, 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 you know? So this very kind client of his who was attending his workshop, you know, comes home, brings him. He is staggering, can hardly stand. Come in the house. He ends up on the floor in a hump of tears. At this point, I had no idea to the degree. So through the course of that day, he shows me in the garage I mean, we pulled him out of alcohol out of little nooks and crannies in the garage, and he started dumping it down the drain. And our recycle bin looked like a college party. Hmm. Wow. And, and I, was, I was in total shock. And at that point, wow. I was naive. I'm like, okay, well, now that the cat's out of the bag, great. You'll get help and we'll be fine. And four years later, I'm realizing that was almost just the beginning of the most hellish part of this disease, at least my part of it my experience of it um because now it was out of the bag it wasn't done it, you know it, it, his sure. body yeah did, did now so this is obviously something that um he went with the intention of of you know taking the clients and doing this thing yeah. and and went went overboard uh drinking wise to prepare himself or however you would say that right and, and basically came out to the clients and then came home and came, came out to you. That's the kind of rock bottom type experience that drives someone into a recovery program. Did he seek treatment for the first time then? Like, was it enough of a, okay, everybody knows this isn't a secret anymore um, to drive him into treatment at that point? You know, it was interesting because what started after that was um, one of the darkest times for me. Cause he, he said he would get help. We get treatment. So that following week, you know, I actually sat down with him and we talked through a bunch of stuff, which this current time, I'm like, I'm not planning anything for you. You figure it out and you come tell me what you want to do. But back then right. I was like, let's research programs. Let's figure it out. You know, um, he was in a very bad mental state. So, you know, I was sort of helping with that. He found some, and then the whole summer, that was the beginning of the summer, the whole summer went by. He never got into a program. Hmm. You know, I could tell again, he lying not drinking in front of me, telling me he wasn't drinking. But at this point I was starting to go, but you seem like you're drinking again, but here goes, here goes the initiation into gaslighting, you know, 101, because I then started to really second guess myself. He said he was going to get help. He said, he called these places. Oh, they're not calling me back. Oh, they don't have room for me. Oh, this, oh, that. And I look back now and I'm like, BS on all of it, man. You just didn't want to stop drinking. So it was the beginning of him wanting to get recovery. I think, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but my perception of it was, but then there were still many um, months that fall. So four or five months later, he did start an IOP program, intensive outpatient, um, which he did about half of. And then it was just, he was functioning enough to be able to hold down his teaching job. And at that point, the IOP was making life, you know, he had no time to breathe do his, I mean, it was just not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So he, he left with a counselor and a plan that did not work. Um, but I could also see that that program was adding so much that, you know, it probably is what he needed to be doing at the time. But at the time it was like, well, I got to keep my job and I can't do both of these things. So it, it then went to a bunch of on and off again, counseling on and off again, AA meetings, a whole lot of me being the only person who knew what was going on and a whole lot of sure. dealing, dealing with him telling me I was wrong. And then that following summer, I think it was, he did go to a rehab a res residential had to leave halfway through because of insurance came hmm. home and re relapsed in a few weeks. I mean, was it a 30 day program that he did half of? Yeah, exactly. Um, and his and insurance would only cover 15 days. <laughs> So you must have been doing the back and forth, uh, have some good times, have some not good times, the progressions taking place. So it, 
because to go from the IOP and then I've got a counselor afterwards, I've got a plan, I've got to keep my job. I don't have time for the full IOP. We, at that point, he still thinks he's pretty functioning and he's, he's going to get on top of this to go from that to, okay, I'll do the inpatient. Things must continually be progressing, right? Yeah. And in fact, the inpatient was, was spawned by, um, me saying to him, I mean, we're, we live in my home. So while we've been together for 11 years and I consider it our home at the end of the day, this is my house. It's your house. Yeah. It's my house. And so it got really bad right before the inpatient we had tried to do. This was again, my naivete. I realized for our situation was I was needing relationship healing. I was seeing him trying. I was questioning my ability to trust him. That was getting thrown in my face repeatedly. Like we have no relationship if you can't trust me. And I, I was really starting to internalize that I was somehow um, screwing up our chances of reconciliation or whatever you want to call it, because I didn't trust him. And I thought, well, I don't know how to trust him. So I'm going to need some help. So I talked him into getting a, a couple's counselor together as so I did some counseling alone. And she was like, where you are right now, the next thing is you've got to bring him in. Like you have to do this with him, you know? And we did a little weekend workshop and then we were working with this counselor and it was, it was an awful experience. I can uh, imagine. He, he was rude to the count. He showed up drunk at the time. I wasn't sure, but I was pretty sure, you know, um, at one point he chewed out the counselor. It was a zoom call pandemic related timing who showed up two minutes after the hour for our appointment. I mean, like in the world of medical care, that's pretty much on time. You yeah, know? I that's mean, pretty good. You know, she's like dealing with trauma patients all over the place and she's two minutes late. And this is a guy who's late for everything, mind you. And he just goes nuts. And I was almost embarrassed, although I decided not to be embarrassed by his behavior before that. I was like, I can't afford to let my sanity, you know. So um, I did apologize to her afterwards and say, look, I, I think we need to stop because I don't I'm not doing this anymore. And that night I I was like, you have to leave. I can't I can't live with you anymore. I cannot have this relationship. It is toxic. It is damaging my peace is gone. The animals are stressed out. I'm sorry. You have to go. And I wrote it in a nice little note. And I said, I, I love you. This is not about not loving you. It's about, it's about, I have got to save myself and my home, my animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, a day and a half later, he came back, I believe sober in that moment. And we had one of the most genuine conversations we've had where he said, he's like, I need help. I need a lot more help. I am really struggling. I'm being an ass. I don't know how to control this. And I think I need to go into some program. Okay. And I said, all right. And if you want to try that, then don't move out. Let's find this program. And then, you know, so figure it out on the other side. When you, you, you mentioned that like with the uh, appointment with the marriage counselor, the relationship counselor, you said you thought he was drunk, but you weren't sure at this point in the process, if you were to bring that up, if you were to call him out, would you get a really nasty negative reaction? Uh, uh, you don't trust me kind of reaction Today? So, or no, at that point, like we're, oh. if, if you sensed it, were you able to call him out every time or was it, or was that just pins and needles? Yeah. Back then it was totally pins and needles. And, and that's why I told him that we needed a counselor because I said, I'm no longer having relationship conversations with you without somebody there, a neutral person. You know, I was doubting myself. I was doubting my perception of everything. And I was also, um, you know, he was never physically violent, but he was rude as hell, you know, mm -hmm. and hurtful and, and would mm -hmm. find these things that really hurtful comments to bring out that there's no reason anybody would say those things unless you know somebody really well and you're looking for ways to really get in there. You know, we all know our partner's deep, painful triggers, you know, and it's just like every insecurity I've ever shared with him was coming back up and it, it, what it taught me in that moment, which is still a recovery process is well, fine. Then I'm not sharing anything with you then because mm -hmm. obviously. Um, so yeah, no, back then it was, it was terrible. And I look at it as the ultimate waste of money. We went to yeah. I don't know, eight or nine sessions and a thousand dollars. We might as well have flushed it down the toilet. That That's so interesting that, you know, I, I'm no therapist. So I, I try to stay out of the position of second guessing people who are, but it's, it's very interesting that your individual therapist said, we need to bring him in. We need to do some couples counseling because until there's sobriety and, and really some time in sobriety, we've just seen case after case where the relationship worked. It 
the relationship counseling is exactly just like you described. It's just a waste of time. Each person needs to work on their own individual stuff before they can get individually strong enough where the, the couple's counseling makes some sense. Did, did you continue, uh, on in uh, personal therapy or did you find a support group? Were you doing anything for yourself or did you even recognize that you needed something for yourself at this point? I think at that point I started to recognize it. I had left, you know, that my private therapist, mm-hmm. um, largely because financially it's just, it's expensive to do all sure that, is. you know? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, we're going to do couples therapy, which I pushed for again, naively, you know, hindsight is more than 2020 here. I would never have done that, but I pushed for that. And I thought I better transfer that money into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when that fell apart, I, I thought, okay, I think that I need to understand this disease more you know, I need to understand what it is that I'm living with and can I live with it, you know, at all? Can I, can I be the partner that's safe, you know, safe for myself, but also not screw him up? Cause at this point too, I had been told so many times about how I was screwing him up by him hmm. that I really thought that I was playing more of a role in this disease than I, than I realized now that I was playing, you know, I really thought that, you know, my um, getting angry about X, Y, or Z or, you know, being more impassioned about something in the news. I mean, these are things that were thrown at me. Like, so I got impassioned about something in the news. That is not a reason that you're over there drinking 18 beers in a day. But there was a time that I thought, oh, this is what they talk about. Whenever there's an alcoholic, the other person is really screwing everything up. That's what everybody says. And and I, I had to get out of that hole first, I think, before. And for me, the way I did that was to educate myself about the disease. And in that process, I started learning about all the labels that get put on the partners and loved ones and family members. And then I started peeling those apart and, and saying, okay, what, what is actually ringing true here and what isn't? Um, that's, that's great. That's great that you were digging in and getting that education that so many people need, everybody, frankly, needs. But we as a society, as a culture, we just keep it as a hushed, whispered thing. And, and so many people don't understand. When, when you talked about him blaming you for it, gosh, that just brings back so many memories of it almost feels like you're clinging by your fingernails to this thing. You, you don't want alcohol out of your life because there are these soothing properties. And for me, for a long time, I didn't recognize that my, my poor choice in cures for my depression and anxiety, for instance, uh, the fact that I was medicating with alcohol, I didn't realize that the alcohol was also the cause of my anxiety and depression. So here it is, this thing that I think is the only thing that soothes me and helps me. And if I can find something that Sherry is doing and blame it on her for the reason that I've got to do this, it, it wasn't even, I mean, it was gaslighting for sure. It was gaslighting her, but it was also gaslighting me. It, then I could sit back and go, oh, okay, well, my wife's a hag, so I've got a drink. It's, it's obviously her fault. So there's an evil component to it, sure, but it's mostly, in my humble opinion, not evil. It's, 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 a re- it's another sense of relief. Oh, I can continue on this course because I've got to be married to Sherry, and you know who could not drink if they were married to this person? And, and just putting that mindset for ourselves is, um, is, you know, sadly really important to keeping the drinking going, but it has this collateral damage for the person that we're with. I mean, it's, nobody should ever blame their addiction on, on somebody else, uh, in the sense that we're talking about here. It's just, it's ludicrous. So I'm really sorry that you had to go through that, but as you researched and learned, you, you figured out, uh, you know, this isn't right. Right. The, the, what, what I'm being told and what I'm believing, uh, this doesn't carry water. You know? Yeah. As I, as I learned about the disease and started to match up what I was learning with what I was seeing in my partner, I was also seeing, like you mentioned a few minutes ago, the good side, the, the kind hearted soul, the generous human being that he is at his essence, you know, and, and seeing that, okay, so it's not him. It's not that he's turned into this beast. I mean, if he stays and doesn't get sober, yeah, the beast is going to take over. But at his soul level, at his spirit, you know, I, I, it, it was a thing. The other thing I had to do was not only see that, but I had to also do, like, I think they call these in like corporate environments or work environments, like the 360 review, you know, where you look at your life around you. And I had to actually sit there and go, wait a minute, I'm friends with literally every person I've ever dated, including an ex-husband 
who had a sexual identity crisis. And I, you know, we're still friends 20 years later after our divorce, you know, um, I, I started to go, not that everybody I've ever met likes me, but I don't have a, a path of dysfunctional relationships personally or professionally. I don't have that. You know, even my brother who we've probably fought with more than any human being on the planet, he and I are really tight. You know, it's, it's, it's a real relationship. We just grew up together. And so we had to throw down a few times, you know, but, sure. um, you know, I had to actually do this self-affirmation exercise of saying, wait a minute, you aren't losing your mind, Deb. There is actually one person in your life where this turmoil exists. And that person has an additional component, which is that we talk about in echoes a lot, that third part, that person is bringing along his partner, which is alcohol. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean I haven't had, you know, personality conflicts with people. It doesn't mean I haven't had arguments. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that I've been able to manage all of that. And what I think is a relatively normal, healthy way. And then here's this one thing. And so I literally had to do this self-talk to say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm just not going to buy into the story that I have somehow lost my marbles here because the rest of my life is still functioning. That, that is so great. That is so incredibly important because we, I mean, we have to blame the alcohol. That's a much healthier thing than just to blame your partner and look at this person as evil. That's, that's, that's not going to help you out of the stuck situation you're in, but you know, at the same time, humans are, we're hard on ourselves. I mean, we are harder on ourselves than we're right. hard on any other person in our life. And it is so easy when we're being gaslit and told that we are the problem to buy into that and just accept that we're not a good human. And for you to do that self-affirmation and realize, um, I've got all these other relationships in my life that are solid and functioning. What's the difference in this one? I, I mean, I just wish more, more people would do that and come to that realization sooner. I think it would um, help a lot of people feel less stuck, which th that's kind of where you were at this point, right? You're doing the research, you're learning, but uh, you're kind of trapped in this cycle of he tries sobriety and then, and he relapses and it, it, this kind of goes back and forth for a while, right? Yeah. And I, and I think to some level, we may still sort of be in that, you know, he's mm -hmm. in a moment now of sobriety of, of six weeks and he's working very hard. And, but yeah, there was a, there was a period of time of extreme confusion because we have built a life together. You know, we have, you know, we have three dogs and two cats and they all love him dearly. And there was no chance that any of them were going to leave this house with him if we didn't stay together. And he was an alcoholic, like I had already called custody lawyers and checked about animal custody. Some of them thought I was a little nuts, but I'm like, I need information <laughs> about the state laws and I want it. I want the information now, you know, um, I knew what my course of action that I didn't want to take was, but I, I had it there so that I could keep everybody safe. I could keep life as stable as possible. They're all rescues. They've all been through trauma. It's like the end of the road is this home. My, yeah, I, I promised them all that that's not negotiable for me. And so, um, I didn't want to create the upset. I didn't want to break his heart and separate from them. Now there are people who would say that's a codependent response to which I say, no, I didn't want to break somebody's heart. Like I'm not going to, that's, that's a valid thing for us as humans. I think to look at, you know, what is our action going to do and is it worth it? Um, and so I kind of decided, okay, we have one particular dog who's really bonded with him and she's older. And about a year ago, I said, okay, I am in this for the rest of her lifetime. She's got some health issues. I don't want her life disrupted. You know, I'll, I can deal with that for another year or two. You know, it's a little better now because there's a moment of sobriety where I can see glimpses of possibility. It's very early and I, I am not comfortable yet by any means. Um, but, uh, but that back and forth of should I stay or should I go? That's probably one of the most agonizing parts of all this. And I can say oh, sure. with 99% surety, and I imagine people with kids, and there's a lot of reasons that our lives get bonded with somebody. Mm -hmm. um, I can say if it wasn't for the, you know, this one particular dog, but our animals in general, but this one who really loves both of us and is older in her years, I don't know that I would have stuck it out through last year, honestly. Um, there were some really bad low points last year where I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's so interesting. It's never as simple as should I stay or should I go? Um, and, and that being a cut and dry, easy, real, easy decision. It, it never is. Um, 
you are open. You're obviously talking with me, with us today about your story. You are owning your story. I think that is really, really important. Um, how Can you talk a little bit about how that has progressed? Obviously, it's impressive, Deb, how much research you did. Eventually, you joined us in Echoes of Recovery, which you made reference to a minute ago. You have continued to, to work on yourself, work on your knowledge base, figure this out. You know, anyone who has tied um, their commitment to staying in the situation they're in to something as you have, uh, you, you know, your, your dog that, that you want to uh, keep the situation status quo through your dog's life. Um, you've, you've done a ton of thinking about this and processing and planning. So this isn't, you're, you're not a spur of the moment kind of um, rash decision kind of person. And, and that has certainly been my experience in the, the year or so that I've known you now. Um, so w- was it also a, a thoughtful decision to start to share your story? And, and because like you said, for a long time, it was just you. You were the only one that knew of your partner's situation. How did the, the circle begin to expand where more people kind of began to know what was going on? Yeah, I think it, there were a couple steps. And one of the big steps was Echoes. And for all the listeners, this is not an endorsement that I was told to make. I will say that the Echoes group has been huge for me because hearing other people's stories and hearing them from all of these really strong people who are dealing with really impossible situations, um, helped to affirm that little 360 that I was doing on myself, which was to sort of say, you know, Deb, actually, you know, cause there were times I'd look at it and go, well, you did this and this and this and this all with the partner passed out. I'm like, that's kind of rock star stuff. Like, why are yeah, you babe. sitting here feeling like you suck? You know? And, and when I hear all the other people's stories, I'm like, that is amazing what these people are sharing. It's humbling how strong some of these stories are, you know, to, to just keep life rolling. And I think that I started to go, you know what, that's the story that is not in the, what I was finding the common language about partners and loved ones of alcoholics. And I also think not only do we, as the partners need that story to be accurate, because sure, I mean, I definitely screwed some things up. I would do things differently if I could go back. I learned a lot of stuff the hard way. I would, there were a lot of in conversations where I engaged more intensely early on that I would never do now and probably didn't help either one of us, but I wasn't like trying to be horrible. But the story, I think not only does it help the partners, but I think the accurate story, how can that not help the addicts and in, in the stories? You know, because I do know, I think in moments of sobriety and honest conversation that have peppered through this, there are moments of, Deb, you don't deserve this. I am so sorry that I've brought this into your life. I'm so sorry that you're dealing with all the pain from this and the trauma from this. You know, I mean, there are moments where I can feel the truth of that coming from his mouth, you know, and they actually feel more true than the, you know, you're the one who's not sober in this conversation. Like, really, that's your gaslighting plan because I actually know that I'm sober. So that's a really bad one. <laughs> Go back, try again. That one's not going to yeah. work. You know, um, I think that the accurate stories of all of it need to be told, including the story of our normalization and our, our practical deification of substance and alcohol. You know, I think that these are the stories that I've, I've, I've just become really impassioned in the last few years of this having felt kind of really bludgeoned down when I looked for sort for support for myself, everything yeah. I found pointed to how I was so messed up and not that there aren't growth edges. I think as humans, if we are open to it, we can grow and expand our entire lives. But it was like a shameful discovery journey. when I first started looking for support, it was just like, mm. wow, really? You know, yeah. and I don't want to say that's everybody's story that I know people have found incredible support. I just, I wasn't personally finding it. You said a few really, really important things there. One, I'm so happy for you that you are able to separate. We, we talk a lot about this in Echoes of Recovery. You're able to separate your instincts from your insecurities when you get those moments of truth. And that certainly was our experience. I would go from, I've had too much to drink and I'm telling Sherry that it's all her fault to maybe a day, a day and a half later, realizing, you know, this cycle's got to end. My drinking is the, the cause of the cycle. I'm so sorry. Let me tell you all the, the regret that I have and your ability to parse that out and recognize which is the nugget of truth and, and 
for sure, which is the gaslighting. Um, that's really important because that gets a lot of people stuck. They get, we get stuck in that confusion. This same person in the same body with that same mouth is saying these two different things. Which one am I supposed to believe? And it's further, you know, intensified by the fact that we as a society look at alcohol as a truth serum. Cause I know that was one of the things that really, really got Sherry for a long time. She would say, you know, I can tell that you're drunk and I can tell that you're saying mean things, but maybe that's the real you. Maybe that's the you that I'm supposed to believe because alcohol is supposed to be this truth serum. And then when you're sober a day and a half later and you're apologizing, maybe that's just you trying to clean up a mess you made with the truth. So the fact that you're able to separate those out, your instincts from your insecurities, that's really, really important. Um, one of the the, you know, side, not benefits, the, the things that happens as a result of sharing our own story is that we are inevitably going to get advice from other people. And you use this term and I just love it. <clears throat> you use diagnostic interpretations is sometimes what you receive from people <laughs> who hear your story. Um, now for me, the, the shorthand for that is why don't you just leave the bum? Um, is one of the things that I can hear people saying. I know that was said about me. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? As, as you do own your own story and share it, you, you probably get some feedback that's useful and some that's less useful. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I think um, the feedback and, and why people respond, you know, it kind of falls into a few camps. It falls into the camps of, of people who, who think that they understand alcoholism because it's prevalent and they've heard about it or they watched a movie about it. I actually had a friend talking about, well, I saw the movie when a man loves a woman, which is a, a really powerful triggering movie to watch. It's not the same thing as living with the damn thing. You know, like it's, it's just two hours, you know, of, of Meg Ryan doing, I mean, it's not the same flipping thing. I mean, God, let me calm down for a second, you know, <laughs> but getting advice from that, that angle, it's like, how many times I've held the phone away from my ear and rolling my eyes. Like, I can't take it. How do I get off? Let me think of a polite way to get off. You know? So there's that, like, I'm going to tell you, I, I have had friends say to me, well, you know, it's a progressive disease. You know, you need to be watching out for it. It's like, really? Cause the last seven years of my life haven't taught me that experientially firsthand in the most difficult ways, you know, like mm -hmm. just stop talking, you know, and then the people who love and care, you know, that's the other hard part is the people who are like, you know, Deb, you've got to get out of this. You, you don't deserve this. And it's like those voices echo sometimes the voices in my own head. I know I don't deserve this. I know that that uh, active addiction is not something I can stay in, you know, and to hear that echoed back isn't supportive, you know, supportive as well. That's really tough. If you need something, call me and I'll be there, you know. If you need to come stay for a weekend, let me know, you know, supportive is that it's like, Hey, can I bring you a casserole? Because you've been in tears for the last eight hours and your partner's drunk and on the ground and here's a casserole and I'm leaving. I'm not going to say anything else. I mean, there's, there's supportive things and then there's advice, you know, and I'm going to fully own that. I don't love getting advice that I don't ask for. That's a, a thing that I don't like. So it's going to upset me more than it might somebody else. But, you know, it's, it's hard because I didn't know until I lived in it. I, I mean, I would never have, I would never have guessed the, um, the chaos and the emotional roller coaster and the unpredictability and the, the deep pain and the deep anger and the deep emotion that can come all within a short time frame. Um, I would never have guessed what it feels yeah. like to live, to live with somebody who's actively killing himself mm. and watching it happen. You know, there's nothing anybody can say. That's part of what I also love about echoes is it's, it's the one place each week where I can go where that is already understood. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I had to learn through this process, not just of experiencing alcoholism firsthand, but of starting to get to know other people who have been in similar situations, I had to learn how to be a listener. And that's not an intuitive thing in our society or in our culture, or, you know, I, I don't know if it's the way we're raised or if that's just part of the human experience, but we desperately want it. When we have someone that we care about that's in pain, we desperately want to fix that situation. And we want to fix it as fast as possible, not just because we want their pain to end, but we are uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations. Your willingness to own your story and to talk about this this way 
it just inevitably, it's not your fault. Please don't think I'm blaming you for this, but it's going to make other people uncomfortable to hear you talking in this way. Uh, I'm sure that people that are tuning into this podcast, it's bringing a great deal of relief to them. But, you know, if I, if I was just to pick up the phone and call my, my buddy and start talking about the, the strife that my drinking had put my relationship through, I know that, that someone like that would, would just feel this intense need to help me fix my problem and, and just sitting and listening. And like you said, uh, bringing over a casserole or being a safe place to come. If you, if you needed to get away for a little while, that's not something we're intuitively good at. Uh, we, we are good at, let me tell you my, my three best ideas for advice, even if they're completely uneducated and, and so much less than helpful. Um, but then I can wipe my hands and say, there, I did my best and, and move on. And that's, that's really unfortunate. We just need to get better, whether it's, whether it's addiction or some other, you know, medical situation or just anything that people are going through, we need to get better at listening. Um, and I think that's an important thing that we can all learn from your story. Um, really, really interesting, Deb. Thanks for sharing that part. Um, I'm curious what, what happened, um, as you started to own your story and, and share it more and more, what happened relationship wise? Uh, how did your partner feel about you talking about this? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I think it, it went a couple different directions. And again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think on the one hand, I know he was excited. Like when I told him I was joining echoes, when I told him, you know, that I was going to be, um, having phone calls with a woman who our partners were in rehab together and we met through the family, you know, she and I have stayed in touch and we occasionally have phone calls and he's always very respectful. And I think there's the sober part of him wants relief for me once knows I've been hurt. And there's also an insecure piece that comes up where I can feel that, that familiar defensiveness to his credit right now, he's managing that a little differently. He's not, the defensiveness isn't coming out like the Disney, you know, evil villain with the fire and the waving arms the way it used to. Um, but I, I can feel even the beginning of it. And it, it's like clamps me down because I've dealt with it so much now for so many years. There's still defensiveness there. They're still there. And I think that, I, I mean, it makes sense when I look at it from a non-emotional standpoint, like yeah, because there's a lot. I don't know what it's like in his world, but there's a lot he has to deal with that he's done to a lot of people. And in his sobriety, these things are going to become more and more obvious to him if he can maintain his sobriety. Uh, that's got to suck. I got to figure mm -hmm. for him. You know, there's a lot of people he he owes some some stuff to. Uh, so there's a little bit of that too, you know, and when I, you know, I don't share everything, but I also have decided early on, like, I guess probably last summer, I was like, you know what, my experience, I'm not going to hide it from him. He doesn't get the luxury of not knowing how much this has pained me, stressed me out, hurt me, you know, like caused me to have sleep trouble, caused me to have all kinds of, I mean, like I I'm no longer going to, to not share that because I don't get the luxury of, I mean, his thing is out there on his sleeve and I've had to deal with all of it. So it's not like a vindictive thing, but it's more like, I think he needs to understand the, this, what I'm going through. And if we're going to be in this relationship, I have a right to share that and whether he can receive it or not becomes his problem. You know, as long as I share it politely and honestly. Um, so, so this piece is really, really important. So many people that we talk to, they are hiding all this truth, right? And, and they aren't letting it out to close family, close friends. So they're just stuck and they're put, they're trying to push it all down. And we all know anyone who's done any kind of emotional work, any kind of mental health work knows what goes down must come up. You can't just push it down forever. It's, it's coming out. It's either going to come out in a healthy way or it's going to come out in a really unhealthy way. But so many people are stifling the story because they don't feel like they own the story. They feel like anything, anytime I talk to somebody and I seek help for myself, I'm outing my partner who has this alcohol addiction issue. And they just kind of live in that stuck world. One of my favorite things that I've ever heard you say is you at some point made a transition from looking at it as his story that you had to keep a secret to recognizing that it's your story and he's just a character in it. And that transition, it must've been transformative for you. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I have to say, I can pinpoint the, the time that that happened 
And I know you're familiar about this because it was, it was the end of, of December. We had this really catastrophic wildfire in my community. Oh yeah. Um, the most destructive in Colorado's history. And that fire hit about 11 in in the morning. And by the time it hit my neighborhood, which is a little west of that area, or the fire didn't hit, I should say, but by the time the news and the pre-evacuation order hit, it was about 1145, 12 o'clock. At that point, he was already passed out. Hmm. I had to wake him up to tell him that they were evacuating the town right next to us, which is like literally basically the same town and that we were on pre-evacuation order. And then I remember in the moment going, okay, I, I, I have to deal with this today. And this whole thing changes after this, because this was like, it it got real. It was like, not that it wasn't real all the other years, but now it's like, I've got to evacuate five animals, two people. We're now down to one car instead of two, which means every, you know, family heirloom is going to have to stay behind because we've got my little Subaru, five animals and two people. That's pretty much it. Down down to one car and not two, because he's not capable of driving the other car. You have the other car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he has a pickup truck that we could have loaded up with stuff. We had all afternoon of warning time, you mm-hmm. know, and he was passed out, belligerent, denying the whole day was just hellish. And I was sitting in the garage loading stuff up. At this point, I had talked to him in. I had done like a little mobility test. This is the stupid stuff that has to happen because I, I when I realized he had started passing out and waking up, and I was like, I got to figure out how drunk is drunk today. This is a six beer day, an 18 beer day. Like how bad? Because I can't get emergency help here because there's a crisis going on. Like Sure. So I talked him into coming out in the backyard with me to walk around with the dogs. I lied. I said, I think they're nervous because of the fire. They probably were, but I was like, can you come out with me? The whole thing was, I wanted to see how much he could walk. Mm -hmm. So he was able to walk kind of, you know, wobbly across the backyard. So we came back in and I I, I talked him into going to sleep. It's like, if if he just passes out, his body will process the alcohol. He won't Mm -hmm. put any more in. That's the thing. That's the big thing. We have a whole night of God knows what coming at us, you know? I had my parents ready, you know, they, we were going to go to their house an hour away. And my dad's like, you want me to come up and we'll just get partner out of there now. You know, after that, I woke up the next morning and I said, all right, I need to stop feeling like I'm stuck because the stuck part is making me really angry. Like the next morning I could hardly look at him. I just wanted him out of my life. I didn't want to even hear his voice. Like my anger was seething. And I realized I sat down with myself and I said, okay, so what are you really angry about? Obviously that was a, him being a liability during a fire instead of an asset was a big problem, but you know, this is a disease. So what is your anger really telling you? And the anger was saying, I feel stuck and I feel trapped here in this relationship. And so then I spent the next couple of days saying, okay, what do I need to do to not feel trapped? Do I need to get him out of here. Do I need to lay down some other ground rules around this? Mm-hmm. You know what? And so basically what I decided to do was, was I waited a few days until I was felt we were in a sober moment. I shared in detail how that fire was for me. And then I, and I said, and I can't do this anymore. Things have to change. I was also supported by two weeks later, he lost his job. So there was another big hit. Big traumatic su- moment. That supported yeah. him going, oh God. Cause I mean, as we all know, it, it, it's not, he has to decide to do recovery, not me. You know, like I can't say you're getting sober today. I tried that, <laughs> you know? So he, he had the fire thing, which he felt terrible about. I could tell. And then he had the lot, the job loss coupled with me hitting a place where I, I said, look, I, if I'm going to stay in this, um, there's some different things that are going to happen. One of them is you have to do something like Soberlink for a while. I cannot have any more a question of who I'm living with, you know, and if you don't want to agree to it, and I don't want to be the only person on it, you have to have a counselor, a coach, you have to have a recovery team and I'm getting information. Are you sober or not? Cause the lies are, I, I said, I'm done. And you risked my life and all of our animals lives by being drunk during this fire. Um, and we're, we're, we're finished. And he agreed to that. He got a team of support. He does that now. He's actually said, cause that was a heavy handed request of mine. I was like this or get out you rehab sober link or leave my life as I can't mm-hmm. have any more. He's actually said that that's been helpful to him because it's like an accountability partner, you know, four times a day when he takes this test, you know, and, and like, something about seeing the reports each day that, you know, a sober day, I, I, he's mentioned a few times that he actually is benefiting, which I appreciate hearing, but I didn't really care. It was, but it all became like, how do I do this? How do I stay here? Cause I didn't feel like it was time to leave. Cause there's this really good man with a really bad disease, but how do I not feel trapped here? How do I live my life and not feel trapped? And it was all this horrific fire. You know, it was one of the silver linings was, I think it just sort of 
burned up in me, my tolerance of, of things that, I mean, I was running out of anyways, but it, it was like the big explosion of it. Part of you owning your own story and part of you sharing your own story here there's a really subtle distinction that I hope that our listeners can pick up on because I, I certainly am. There's a big difference between what you were trying to do at the beginning, where you were trying to control the situation, you were trying to do the research, you were trying to get him into rehab, you were trying to fix him, which is a, a very loving instinct, but it just frankly doesn't work. No. So between that, where you were trying to move all the pieces on the chessboard and make it all work out to now where you you drew boundaries that were thoughtful and you knew that you needed this in order to live. And, you know, you said, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, or I need you to get out. And I mean, I can hear it in your voice. I'm sure our listeners can too. You weren't messing around. This, this, this was, this was the end of the line. If the, the things that you needed, because it's so important for us to put the boundaries into our own terms. This is what I need. Yeah. I'm, this isn't for you. You, you know, I hope that the recovery is beneficial for you too, but I need you to stop the lying and to stop the drinking. I need that not to be a part of my life anymore. And if that means you're not a part of my life, then I'm willing to accept that. And the way you not only phrase it and present it, but the way I'm, I know that you internalize it, it's so important because it's so different than I'm going to get you recovery. I'm going to get you fixed up. I'm going to solve your problem for you. Um, so, very, I mean, you, you said it a couple of times, you, um, things that are to the effect of, uh, like, like the sober link. Um, he says that's beneficial to him. That'd be great if it is, but I don't really care. I think you actually said, I don't really care. I mean, that's, that's really important. That distinction. Do you, do you feel like, can can you feel that shift? You must be able to feel that shift internally. I, you know, I can, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's like hearts and flowers. I mean, I'm still very Mm -hmm. nervous about the future. I'm still not sure where this is going. I'm really excited about six weeks of sobriety. It's, it's allowed a lot of the sober link has allowed a lot of my own energy to go back into my own life and my own work. I mean, it's astonishing to me in six weeks, what I've been able to do when I'm not focusing on trying to manage whether or not I'm living with a drunk person, because I know that I'm not. And I know that if he is going to relapse, I'm going to know about it so I can choose my level of engagement as opposed to get blindsided by it. And then basically, you know, abused by it truthfully. Um, it feels, it feels less of a, uh, I don't feel trapped. I don't love it. I wish it wasn't this way. I, I really look forward to, you know, hopefully years and years of sobriety, looking back on this and as a memory, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and say that our relationship is hearts and flowers. I mean, the healing work that's there is overwhelming right now. And we're not trying it because it's too early in this process. And what I learned in that couples therapy is I'm not engaging in that again for a good while. You know, like Mm -hmm. I just, I'm not spending time and money on that for a while. I don't know what that looks like. You know, I don't know how long does Soberlink stay in the picture. I have no idea. Um, Right now, I can't even imagine living without it, but it's only been six weeks. I mean, that could be a full year. I mean, I I don't know. There's all this, um, the mystery of the journey and then the the complete um, insidiousness of this disease. You know, I am afraid of this disease, but I don't feel trapped in this relationship anymore. I now feel like I'm choosing to be here with a person that I love and care about. And there are some conditions to what that is going to have to look like for this to be something that continues. But today I've been able to figure out how it, it makes sense for me to be here. It, it's like, I don't feel like I'm uh, selling myself, uh, you know, like my life is still moving forward in other ways that I'd be doing, even if he wasn't here. Like I've had to do all this thought, but I feel okay about it right now. You know, I don't know how many more relapses I have the tolerance for. Hopefully there won't be very many more, but, you know, I don't know what somebody's journey into extended sobriety and everybody's journeys I'm guessing is a little different and everybody has to start with that first day and that first week and those first six weeks, you know, and I have a lot of hope around that. Um, But I've also been, I've been schooled pretty hard by this disease. And I know that that hope is one part of it and what's going to happen is something else. So. you've done three really important things in my opinion, Deb, you've well important, maybe not, maybe not happy or good, but you've lived the experience. So you've got that side of it. You, you know what you're talking about because uh, you've been through the trauma. 
you've done a lot of research too. You've read up, you've, you've learned about addiction, um, and you've, you've figured out how the disease works and you've gotten help for yourself and gotten support and realized that you're not alone. Those three things, the experience, the education, and the support, I think are super important. And when you combine that with how well-spoken you are, you're kind of an ambassador for this. I'm very, very impressed with the way (laughs) you talk about this. And I know that a, a particular passion of yours is something that we've mentioned a couple of times during this discussion it's the normalization it's how alcohol is everywhere and how that's unfair not only not just to people that are dealing with alcoholism it's unfair to the next generation it's unfair to everybody that alcohol touches the way we just normalize it have you given any thought this is a completely unfair question to someone that's still in the middle of it and just uh, just just experiencing 6 weeks of recovery but have you given any thought about how you're going to lean into that, that passion for, um, you know, blowing up all of the, the cultural beliefs around the normalization? Well, that is a really good question. You can just say, (laughs) no, what the hell are you asking me that for? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I don't think I've thought about it as directly, but I, I, I do think, and this kind of goes back to the, our stories are what makes our life, you know, our lives yes. are made of our stories. And for whatever reason, in the big mystery of all of it, whatever reason, this has become a piece of, of my own story. And I, I don't take that lightly. You know, I don't take the things that I, I can learn from and share. I mean, there's a part of me that says, okay, so is there, is there a responsibility here that I can then move, move in the world in a different way? I mean, I can tell you for small parts, you know, like I would never, um, you know, like I went to a networking event last summer in the little break in the pandemic when you could do in-person things for a few months. Sure. And it was, it was a woman's business networking event. And the only thing served was beer. I had to go up to the bar and ask for water and they could only give it to me in a bottle. They couldn't even give it out of the tap. And I was like, I don't want a bottle of water. I want to, you know, I was like, I will never host any event like that ever in my life. I probably wouldn't have before, but there is sure as heck no way now. And the other thing that I I think I would do over and over again, I I, I can't laugh at alcohol jokes anymore. Mm. I can't, I can't be around people who are making those jokes and not say, you know what, there's another side. And that other side is that there are people who are suffering. There are people with addictions living in, in hell that I can only imagine. And then there are people who love those people living in a hell that, that, I can unfortunately understand. And I think that all of that is the more stories that, that we share, which is part of what I love about what all that you and Sherry share. I think the stories are our power. You know, I, I, as an educator by trade, I, I know that stories are the way to connect. You know, it's our natural way of, of learning from each other. You know, nobody learns as well from the lecture, like the peanuts, you know, wah, wah, wah. but when somebody sits down and says, let me share a story with you about something. Um, so to whatever degree I can share that story in a way that helps people who are in a similar situation, maybe not be stuck as long as I was in the gaslighting, you know, which it's not gone. Like there are still moments, you know, but it's like those dark, dark moments of, of, wow, I, obviously I'm clearly losing my mind. Like, how do we move through those more quickly? Um, you know, I, I, I think, yeah. And as soon as, you know, my partner, maybe if he becomes more willing to share his story, that also might open up a little more freedom with where I share in it. Cause I'm not ashamed of the side of it. I, I also want to be respectful of, of his journey, you know, so I'm not going to like plaster all over Facebook. Hey, I'm a partner of an alcoholic, you know, um, come talk to me. You know, that's not where we are at this point, but that's, that's honestly out of respect for the fact that he's a part of the story, even though he's just a player in it. Well, I have to say, I love that you, uh, that you are a believer in the power of storytelling and that that is how that's the best way for us humans to learn. And I can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing your story with us. You are, you are uh, a natural at this. You are loving, you are empathetic, you are well-spoken. And I'm just really blessed Deb, to have you on our team. Um, because I would hate to have you fighting for big beverage. I think that would be, uh, we wouldn't want you on the other side. And I have to tell our <laughs> listeners before we go, you, you talked about your animals and how much you love your animals, but I got to witness while you were making one of the most important, impactful points that you made during this whole thing, a cat just walked up on your desk and climbed across your lap and you petted the cat and just kept going. You didn't miss a beat. So you are a true 
real life <laughs> animal lover. And, and as I know, a lot of our listeners are, so I'm sure that they can relate. Deb, thanks for talking to me today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And also thank you so much for all the work and for echoes of recovery. And I really don't know what I would be doing without that truly, honestly, from my heart. Um, yeah. I appreciate you saying that you're a huge asset in that program and we're happy to have you. And another cool little side benefit to Sherry not being here. She never listens to these podcast episodes after she records them because she hates the sound of her own voice. So I know for sure she's going to be dying to listen to this one because I know she's <laughs> sad that she missed the conversation. So thanks for putting up with just me, Deb. It was great. Absolutely. And tell Sherry that I love her voice. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it. Or actually, awesome. you just did because I know she's going to listen to this one. <laughs> awesome. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.